Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Griff Long is an avid health and wellness enthusiast. He blends his passion for fitness with his drive to develop world-class organizations as the head of operational development and innovation at Orange Theory Fitness. Griff has over 25 years of experience in transforming startup organizations into multi-million dollar corporations and has served leadership roles in both enterprise and consumer businesses across the country, including the COO of Pure Bar, VP of Operations for Equinox, Senior Vice President of SoulCycle, and Senior Director of Operations for Hertz. A graduate from Bridgewater State University with a bachelor's degree in business, Griff also prioritizes his own physical health and wellness as a U.S. Triathlon Association coach, CrossFit coach, running coach, Sean Delaney facilitator, and Six Sigma Green Belt. So a classic underachiever, Griff Long. Thanks for being on the Second Command podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, dude, I, I kind of read through that bio and they absolutely crushed it with bringing you on board as a COO. I mean, I can tell right away with every every um, organization you were involved in, it was kind of the, the top of their game as well. So what was it that, that attracted you to Orange Theory? Uh, I think, you know, a number of things. My passion for fitness, obviously, uh, but most importantly, just the innovation and the science behind the workout. You know, as, as a triathlete, I'm always studying. I track every one of my workouts. And the things we're doing at Orange Theory here just get me really excited to come to work every day. You know, we're not looking three months, four months ahead. We're looking five, ten years ahead to really change the, the scope of what fitness looks like to the member in their experience. Awesome. And I guess I shouldn't assume that, that everybody knows what Orange Theory does, although I'm sure most of us have at least heard the brand. Tell us what Orange Theory is, what you stand for, so that we get a bit of an understanding there. Yeah, we are science-backed, technology-tracked, coaching-inspired group fitness workouts. So we use a few different tools within our studio to bring what I would say more life to our members. And we do that through um, heart rate interval training. We get you on a treadmill. We bring your heart rate up and down. We operate in five training zones, orange and red. We try and get you 12 or more splat points in every class. So you're always going to have a cardio component. You're going to have a strength and conditioning component. We also bring with the cardio, we'll bring in the rower and other tools to get that heart rate up and down. Hmm. Is that where the orange comes from, is staying kind of just below the red zone? Yeah, see, it's the orange zone. And when you have 12 or more splat points, you're going to get this epoch effect, which is going to allow you to continuously burn calories for up to 36 hours after the workout. It's interesting. I remember when I was training for a marathon a couple of years ago that there was a certain heart rate I had to try to stay in. And if I, if I actually stayed at that heart rate, I could. it was like Forrest Gump. You could just keep going. But as soon as I, even at a shorter distance, as soon as I got my heart rate too high, I was burning out way too quickly. Yeah, and that's, and that's one of the things from my training. When I started incorporating high-intensity interval training into my run and my swim workouts, it really trains the game for me and elevated my physical fitness because you're going up for small blocks of time, where which will help you train and be even stronger in your marathon. So we'll, and I would even incorporate those high-intensity interval trains into those marathon or those triathlon workouts just to get the body to adapt more. 
Now, so Orange Theories, I mean, great brand, um, getting great recognition, really strong reputation in a super competitive industry. Like there's just so many different uh, chains and organizations where I guess you, you can, do you compete against or do, is it rising tides lift all boats? Are the markets just so big that it doesn't matter? I think we're, we're focused on, you know, we're always monitoring competition, but I think we're focused on what can we do to bring more life to our members. And we're doing that through technology and innovation, thinking about what do the members need to see to get their results. Hmm. It's easy to get somebody into a studio, but it's, if they're not getting the results, then they're going to leave. And I think that's what happens in most fitness concepts. So the more data we can give them that's simple, easy for them to use up and understand, the more we will get them to stick to this workout. That's interesting. Okay, so walk us through the, uh, the, the, the makeup, I guess, of the leadership team and what did they see in you and bringing you on as COO 18 months ago? Yeah, so we have a we have a very uh, tight knit group. There's nine people on the leadership team. Uh, Dave Long's our CEO. Uh, Dave Carney's our president, and we we are still privately owned. Uh, but the reason they brought me on is I, I think I bring uh, I call it a double threat. I have an extensive background in leadership development training. This company has gone from zero to a hundred in only ten years. And what they were looking for is more senior leadership, um, more of the process behind uh, what we do today with all the initiatives we do. That Six Sigma background has really helped me uh, prepare them to say, hey, let's let's slow down. Make, let's make sure we nail it. Let's not go too fast. And then really couple that with the leadership development training is how can we support these franchises even more effective tomorrow than we are today? Interesting. Okay. So on the, um, the Six Sigma, where did you get trained in that? Was that at GE or was it at Motorola or where did you get your exposure? Those are the only two big organizations that I know were deep in it. Yeah. The, well, we got it. I got it through Hertz, which was at the time owned by Ford, which was probably the third company that was big into the Six Sigma. Sure. Yeah. And amazing training, right? Amazing. You know, I got a green belt. I didn't go through the full black belt because that requires a full time. <laughs> But it just, it really helped me learn and understand the process. And really what I took away, one of the things we always talk about now is the failure mode effect analysis. It's like you have a project and you're ramping it, but let's figure out what could go wrong. Let's put a risk score associated with it. And that really paid dividends in prior years when I was launching a new division for Hertz, where if you can anticipate what could go wrong, and put countermeasures before you even launch, it makes your launches even more effective than they would have been. Interesting. Yeah, I think the uh, Six Sigma Black Belt is kind of like the Kona Iron Man of um, <laughs> process development. What would you throw What would you throw out? Anything that you've learned in Six Sigma that you just like, we don't like that or it doesn't work or it's too complicated? No, I think, you know, it was, it was originally built for manufacturing and you have to customize it a little bit to, to your needs and whatever business you're in but the concepts and the principles behind six sigma are still all there so it's just really customizing it to your needs and your business interesting okay so you joined the organization how do you get up to speed how did you come in and um especially with a very entrepreneurial organization fast growth organization how did you get up to speed because i don't imagine they had a strong onboarding process for you no, I think in, you know, I've, I've relocated 18 times in 25 years. So 
I've learned what to do and what not to do when you come into an organization or to an increased responsibility. And I said for the first two weeks, I just shut up and listened and really asked two questions. What advice do you have for me? And how can I make your job even more effective? And just really got to know, focus on the people, then the process, and then the performance. But really understanding the people, where were their opportunities, whether it's personal or whether it's within their area of responsibility. So I think for me, first 30 days is just really focused on getting to know the people and making sure I understood that culture. Because I've stepped early on my career, stepped on some landmines by going in there like a bull in a china shop and do it this way. But for me, it was really about just listening and learning and figuring out where the opportunities were. So what did you find on the opportunities first on the people side? Uh, people side, the most passionate people, team members in the world, craving more leadership development and more of a um, structured environment. You know, we we were we had so many initiatives up in up in the uh, pipeline that we really just had to determine what is most important for us in prioritizing them and getting the right team members involved. There was uh, sort of a siloed approach in different departments and really breaking down those silos and making sure that we are all connected and the right people are involved early on in the process. So there's no surprises or finance didn't know about this or a retail didn't know about this. How did you break through those silos? I'm working with a coaching a, a company right now that's just gotten up to 750 people and in five years, they've gone from 70 to 750 and they're starting to, to um, kind of stratify into these silos. I'm trying to, to rage against that and break through it. I, interesting, I have a football analogy I'll give you in a second, but how did you break through those? I think it goes back to staying off email and trying to manage manage the business and the team players through an email process. I would get the right people in the room, have conversations, and making sure everybody's aligned. One of the things we also introduce is what I call a golden thread to every product that or project that we're developing. And this golden thread just really outlines what the objectives are of this project. And it does a future state. It kind of describes the member experience throughout that. So when we introduce the golden thread, we combine that with what uh, Tony Robbins talks about, state story strategy. Every project now has a golden thread. So it clearly understands the why behind it, especially when when you're dealing with a large franchise organization. The why is so critical critical because these franchises are making money and they have a process. If you want something new, they got to, you gotta start with the why. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, we used to say sell them, don't tell them. Exactly. Yeah. And I love the whole golden thread idea because it's interesting how, you know, in the entrepreneurial world, I was building a company called one eight hundred got junk and our founder would come in and he'd have this amazing great idea that he'd probably spent two months swirling around in his head or, or at minimum, at least an hour it was swirling in his head. And he would kind of dump it onto either my lap as the COO or onto the laps of the leadership team. But he, he rarely gave us the full why behind the what. We clearly understood what the project was, but we didn't see how it all fit into everything. And I think that slowing down to give them that a little bit more time, that creates, does that create more of the buy-in? Is that why you're doing it? A hundred percent. And, you know, if, if we go and pitch a new idea to the franchise and it's not vetted out properly, they're going to go right into judgment mode and start saying, well, what about this, this and this? So another step in our process that I've instituted is we have a, a small number of corporate owned studios. So before anything's launched to our franchise system, we have tested it, broken it, proven it 
in the corporate studios, find all the questions that we didn't know answers to. So then I can explain this and I get ahead of it. I said, you, you might not think this is going to work, but here's the data to prove it did. Here's the data that shows this works. And again, go getting back to your why. Well, and I love that you're actually running corporate locations. One of my um, things that has always bothered me about so many franchisors is they franchised because they couldn't make enough money running a location. So instead of like the franchisees had to make a lot of money and franchisors that run corporate locations understand the pain points. They understand how to get that leverage because they have to. Um, plus they can kind of point to themselves and go, look, it works. Correct. And it really is the proving ground for everything that we do now. And I think we've put a lot more structure working with our technology team to say, okay, we're going to launch at this studio, expand from here. But again, it does make it bulletproof when you launch to the base. So I, I was going to tell this story about you know, how to break down silos or something I've been working on. And I was, then I was pulling away from it. And I said, no, but I keep seeing this Patriot shirt. So I have to kind of go into this. So if you think about Tom Brady for a second, you know, you think about the Patriots, you've got the offensive team and you've got the defensive team and you've got the special teams, Tom Brady quarterback. What, what is his most important team? I think what is Tom Brady's most important team? Um, well, that's a great question. I think, I don't think he could point to one. I think he would point to it. It's the sum of the, all the parts. Thank you. And that's why you're good at what you do. I wish everyone could see what I just kind of threw my hands up. But so many companies that struggle with silos, what happens is they think that the quarterback's most important team is the offensive team, or they think the VP of marketing's most important team is marketing. And it's not. The VP's most important team is the company. The COO's most important team is the company. The head of finance's most important team is the company. Their second most important team is finance or marketing. You know, Tom Brady's most important team are the Patriots. The second most important team is the offensive team. But when he's off the field, he's watching what's happening on there with the defense so he can show them what's going on because they're all in it for the good of the team. 100% I think, agree with that. So did you have any of those issues at all where people were really more focused and obsessed about theirs? Did you have to break through that at all or was it more communication on projects? Yeah, no, I think I think you see that in any organization I've worked for. I mean, you get tunnel vision and you start to think about one specific goal. My job, what is that? And what do I have to do to get that done? What I always remind the team that we make better decisions when we make them together. So I don't I am the least important person in every room I'm in. I'm the one who will facilitate the conversation and make sure the different departments are saying, what do you see? Help me see around corners. What are we missing? So I think just making sure that transparent communication and it's a safe space where people can challenge the ideas. And if you do that, that's to me is how you break down those silos. Yeah, that totally works. All right. So then we've got um, on the areas of operations, when you said you were meeting with the people in the first two weeks, what operational improvements did you see that had to happen? I think I, for me, I started with the corporate owned studios and typically in most startups, um, you have the opportunity because you're, you're on an upward trajectory like a hockey stick is we were really throwing a lot of bodies at problems with no clear um, infrastructure set up. So what I did is start on the corporate owned studios and created, um, I learned this from Hertz Renicar is the COE concept. So we don't need 12 people working on marketing at the corporate-owned studios. We need one expert. Then we need one expert on ops support, then an expert on facilities. 
So mm-hmm. what I did is restructured the team, and then there's the regional managers out in the field who are generalists, who know a little bit about everything. But when they're coming back to the corporate and don't have the answer, they can talk to a marketing expert who will help them create the right marketing strategy. They're struggling with lead generation or closing sales. They can talk to the sales expert in there. And we would deploy these experts throughout the the region, when I say region, the corporate-owned studios, to make sure that each plan was being executed and customized to their needs. So it's not a one-size-fits-all for every studio that's out there. Everybody has different challenges and pain points, and that's even more evident when you talk about international. So what is the customized approach? So my marketing person may be focused more on these three studios because they don't have the lead generation. On the sales side, then we're going to have another couple of studios that are focused on that. So it was really creating the infrastructure and that COE center of expertise concept that I think really made a biggest mark. How do you run your, um, your corporate versus your kind of operational locations in terms of, um, let's say for marketing as an example, what, what decisions and programs are being managed nationally and what percent do you allow or what do you allow the franchisees to do? So we have, we have a, our, our marketing team is very robust and they have a marketing fund like most franchises. So they're crafting the overall strategy, the overall message, and that is more life. And they are, they are cascading that on a national campaign. Then as we get into our infrastructure, it's then regional and then it's studio level. So there's three tiers that we will operate on. What the operation teams is more focused on tier two and tier three, while our national marketing is focused on tier one. In addition, we also have uh, co-ops in strategic areas that will partner together to get more bang for our buck in specific areas. Like if you think about New York, if every studio was spending 5000 a month on marketing, it's not going to have bang. But when you have that combination of studios going after that, it really puts more money and gives us more opportunity to create a message and to get that down to the local level. Yeah, it does. How do you worry about um, this whole concept of death by a thousand cuts? You know, you've got in every single zip code, you've got a really strong gym that's either an independent or another chain or another workout type um, or a big, you know, big box. How, how do you how do you guys stay focused when you have the opportunity to get distracted by what every competitor is doing? I think we're laser focused on doing what in in concentrating on what we're great at and that is the science behind the workout yeah there's a lot of gyms out there and there's a lot of great gyms out there but i think when you look at what we do that differentiates us is that we're focused on the science we're going to prove to you that you're getting more results for for example um, we have in-body scales being launched to all our studios which will get your bmi compensation so if you're able to see that and then look at it again in 90 days and see the results, there's proof that it works. Whereas some people might not feel they're getting the results because you can't necessarily see your body transform. But when you can put the numbers behind it, then you have the evidence. And that's where we like to always think about more sticky points, as we call them, to keep our members engaged. So how do you keep them engaged? What are those sticky points? Uh, well, we, we have invested a lot in our mobile app, so it's, it's connecting with our members through our mobile applications. It's by delivering custom content to those members, and I think it's more, you know, the sticky points are just, as I mentioned before, the data, the science behind the workout. So if you took a workout for Orange Theory, it's immediately being fed to your iPhone, our app, 
and it's going to give you a history and you can also see your progress. You're going to just see we have the we have a challenge tracker that enables you to see what your fastest 1,000 meter row was. Six months later, there's another challenge put out there, and you see your improvement. So it's it's sticky points through all of those components. Okay. Um, talk about the leadership team for a second. How do you get your whole leadership team on the same page with the vision and operations and plan? On my operate, you mean my operations team? No, the company as a whole, the company leadership team. Yeah, well, we have a, we have a cadence of meetings um, every week. We meet at Tuesday at twelve o'clock, and we are all it's it's a very short meeting, but it's very strategic with what are the key things each of us need to know. And then every year we go away into what we call a strategic summit, and we map out our priorities for that entire next year. And I think we're very disciplined with staying on that roadmap. Of course, there's always going to be opportunities and things that change. But I would say 90% of those initiatives we start with, we finish the year by executing on those. So how, how do you stay on that roadmap? I think it's just execution with discipline. It's making sure that we are meeting, communicating with each other and making sure we're always constantly aligned. And we do that through those uh, weekly touch base meetings that we have. And on a Kate, you know, I am very connected with the team. Uh, we, we will make sure we pass through the hallways and have those water cool conversations to make sure that we are always talking about those strategic initiatives. And is your head office all in one location? It is. Okay. Any, and are you looking at all to go with any remote team at all? Or are you just trying to stay more and more, on the corporate location? Um, I think, you know, for it, it, the executive team, we're always, we always want the team here because there is so much going on and having them all in one place. I know there's different points of view on that, but for me, just being able to walk into the CFO's office or to Dave Long's office or to one of my colleagues to have that conversation is so critical. And you can't do that via the phone. It's easy. Yeah, I agreed. Um, all right. So then you talk about, kind of staying on plan and then every once in a while good ideas pop up what system or process do you have in place to say yes and to say no or not yet to ideas um, either ideas that come from the franchise or from the operations group or from the the leadership team yeah i think it starts but when when we put an idea together the first thing we're doing and, and i mentioned this earlier is we're creating a golden thread and we're going to make sure we have the state the story and the strategy and then we're going to make sure that we put a business case behind this. Is this something that is going to be a revenue driver? Is this, what's the why behind it? What's the KPI to measure to prove that this is going to work? So it's not just going, great idea, let's launch it. It's let's prove it, let's put some numbers behind it, and let's see if, you know, when's the right time to do this. Interesting. Yeah, I like that you're actually saying that you're you're kind of quantifying the decision on that golden thread as well. So you're saying, um, I, I created something called the decision filter, which is similar setup. And I, I look down at the bottom of it and I say, what's the amount of cash we have to put in? What's the ROI on that? What's the number of hours or days we have to put in? What's the ROI on that? And then will it increase one of these four things or multiple? Will it increase our employee net promoter score, our customer and promoter score, our profitability or revenue? And based yeah, on... And it's only once we filled out that form are you allowed to say yes or no to a project. Correct. And, then, and there's also the, you know, the opportunity cost. If we put our resources to this, how crucial is that other project that might get, 
you know, down the priority list. So we look at all those components before moving forward. So we're, we're kind of the sum of all of our past experiences as leaders. So if you were to go back through a little bit of your resume for us and talk about, um, you know, where do we start with Pure Bar or Hertz? I guess we started Hertz and kind of um, go the other way, right? Hertz, SoulCycle, would that be the direction you were in? Yeah, there's, there's some others in there. Um, a majority of my first 15 years were with Hertz, and then I went to work for Steve Case, the founder of AOL. He st- had a startup called Flexcar that merged with Zipcar, and then I got into the fitness. Okay, so let's let's start with Hertz first, and then Flexcar, and then Steve Case, and then go to the others. I'd love to hear. So what maybe were your number one takeaways from Hertz, or a couple of key things that you learned that you still carry with you today? Yeah, in fact, I actually printed my top 10 that I keep it with me all time because I thought you might ask this. Um, But if I had to pick, um, probably in no particular order, but number one is build relationships rooted in trust. And I always say this, especially when uh, when we're talking to the 5,500 coaches in the network, people aren't going to remember what you said, but they're going to remember the way you made them feel. So I think building those relationships and finding people's why. I don't care if it's, you know, an entry level person that's working part time. I want them, I want to understand who they are and making sure that entire team is vested in building those relationships. For me, um, personally, it's about staying humble and vulnerable. You know, early on my career, especially at Hertz back in the day, it was like, if, if you ask questions, it showed weakness. And I quickly learned that if I can really just be humble enough to ask for help and be vulnerable to know that, hey, I need, to, I need some more people on this to make a better decision, I'm going to be even more effective of a leader. And I'd say the third thing is just empowering, trusting your team. You know, the more empowerment you give them, I, I say to my team constantly, there's a level that, and same thing I do with coaching Ironman triathletes, there's a level inside of you that you have not tapped into. In the next year, we're going to tap into that. How do you want to go about doing this? Oh, so you actually throw it back to them to see how they want to do it as well. Correct. I like it. Um, and you're, you're right about that level of energy that's still in the tank. I remember finishing my first marathon and kind of crossing the line and going, damn, like, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to go and run another 10K, but I was like, that wasn't actually as hard as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and that's, and that's why my best races are, are when I get sick at the end. So I know I had nothing in the tank. And that's when I said, good, I nailed it. Well, I had that the next morning. Um, <laughs> so where you, you mentioned kind of your, the humility of a leader. I think that Jim Collins talked about that level, level five leadership and sounds like you kind of run in that, that thread. Where, where are you weak as a leader? As, you know, as a COO, I don't think we're supposed to be strong in everything. The COO has got to be strong in a couple and we have to counter. But where do you think your weaknesses would be that um, you're just more cognizant of? I think I, I always have to remember that people operate at different speeds and I have to be patient. I am probably most COOs would say the same thing, but just I don't have a lot of patience. I will give somebody an assignment and then 24 hours, I'm like, how are we doing on that? So I always have to remember that not everybody operates at the same level and just making sure that you're more of a support network and know when to push and when to pull. There's sometimes people need help and they're drowning. And that's why I get to that building the relationship rooted in trust. And, you know, knowing having when your team has trust in you and i'll give you a quick story i was in new Mm -hmm. york last week and we were about to open this studio so i immediately went into the studio and i started pointing out all the things that needed to be repaired in the next 24 hours 
and my studio manager came up to me and this is talk this is relationship rooted in trust she says griff can you just tell me one thing that you like about this studio and right there i stopped i gasped and i said that's old griff falling back getting into that a type personality and I said to I said to Emily, I said, Emily, I just want to thank you for coaching me on this and making sure I was set. So I sent her a text at the end of the night. I'll be back on my game tomorrow. I was I came in hot and I apologized. And that's where I go about being humble and vulnerable and rooted in trust. When your team can tell you that, you can course correct immediately. If I keep going and nobody coached me, that whole team wouldn't have been inspired for the all the hard work they had done. And I was so focused on making it perfect, I missed that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, I think the school system hurt us as leaders, really as humans in a lot of ways. But, you know, they, they kept showing us that if we were really bad in one subject, we needed to get a tutor at it and really work at it. And then we could become horribly average at something we didn't enjoy. Instead of just saying, you know what, I'm really not good at that and letting someone else be good at that. Um, I think in leadership, sometimes we have to give away some of those. Are there any real skills that aren't so much a strength of you, but are just a weakness? Like for me, I'm really bad with numbers. I I flip and transpose a lot of my numbers. So I get, um, I find it really, I struggle with financial statements and I struggle with budgets and spreadsheets. Anything like that? Yeah, totally get the question. I think for me, it's along the same lines is, you know, if you if you give me an Excel spreadsheet with hundreds of lines of information, I w- I have people on my team that can translate that into high level data because I don't like getting in the weeds of those Excel spreadsheets. I'm like, there's seven pages of files here. Give me the punchline. What do I need to focus yeah. on? And that's where you know I think great leaders will surround themselves with where they have people that um, that love to do that and can focus on that. Yeah, and that's why why I think it's so important for us to be humble and say where we're strong on something. The um, I heard a funny joke about humility the other day. It said, "I'm so proud of how humble I've become." <laughs> <laughs> um, I think of a dashboard in our business, almost like our car dashboard. You know, our car dashboard might have ten or twelve metrics on it, but then if you plug in the car, there's thousands of data points that the the mechanics can look at. But God forbid, if those were ever in front of us, we wouldn't be able to drive the car, right? And then we have that one big one that's the speed and then the small one that lights up when it's less than a quarter tank that goes, hey, fill up with gas. That's really how I want our leadership team dashboards to be a little bit more than, you know, rows and rows of data. 100%. I talk about dashboards all the time. Give me the punchline. Let's make this, let's, let's get into the weeds with, you know, the analysts behind the scenes, but the punchline, especially when you're dealing with franchises, you have to keep it simple and straightforward. And again, show the why. What are your, um, your nine people on your leadership team? What's your meeting rhythms with the leadership team? What types of meetings do you have and what kind of frequency do you guys have them? Yeah, so we we have a once a week touch base with a, a roundtable meeting with our team where we just go around the room and share what are the critical projects. Uh, in addition to that, as I mentioned before, we have our strategic leadership summit that we do once a year. Um, and I think it it depends on the topic. I'm I spend a lot of time with our chief technology officer working on initiatives because we are very much aligned in where he delivers a product and then it's my responsibility to decide when it's rolled out. So once it's done and his beta comes to us, goes to our corporate studio. So I spend a lot of time um, 
and the best thing about the COO job is you're involved in everything. So I, I promise you, I touch base with every one of my C-suite executives at least once a week on a different topic. How do you stay? How do you stay out of all the areas that we could get ourselves into, or how do you stay at the level you're supposed to be and avoid getting in on everything? Uh, I have I have amazing people behind me, and I'm able to leverage my team in those those players that are asking for more. I won't go to every meeting. You can't possibly do that, but they're great at giving me um, talking about the critical decision points or this came up and saying, you know, you'll need to be involved in this or I can give them the marching orders and go back. But for the most part, it's really uh, empowering, which I mentioned earlier, and sometimes deciding what meetings are most important. Okay. So, you do the on your one-on-one meetings with your direct reports. How many direct reports do you have and what kind of um, one-on-one or coaching do you work with them on? Yeah. So I have uh, probably 16 direct reports right now as we're creating some more infrastructure. So it's not optimal. I want to be down to eight. So uh, we're looking at how to tighten that. But as I've taken on more departments and more responsibility, we're still building that infrastructure. Um, I do half hour check-ins with every single one of my team members and that those meetings are based on what do you need for me and basically use what I call a traffic light. Red, what do you want me to stop doing? Yelling, what do you, yellow, what do you want me to think about? And green, what do you want me to keep doing? And then they provide me with a quick update of the key projects they're on. Outside of that, we will have at least, I'd probably say every two months, what I would call a development meeting. So I create personalized development plans for every single one of my employees, which is just about leadership. It has nothing to do with KPIs or matrix. It just says, what do you have to be more effective a leader? What do you need from me? And one example would be, you know, I need to empower and trust my team more. So then we would sit down and write, okay, when you're faced with this, you're going to do this and create a course of action. So every one of my people have the development. And then there's the monthly financial reviews with every department to see how they're performing and where we, where our opportunities are. What do you mean by that with the financial reviews with each department? So when you think about our corporate owned studios, we are sitting down and we do a report out to actually the executive team. So each team member has a little component of that. So on the corporate owned studios, we'll have uh, the marketing component, the sales component, and we leverage the data to say, how are we performing? Uh, this studio is up 20%, but we're not closing leads. So we're, we're doing the deep dive into each KPI to determine where our opportunities are. Got it. Okay. Um, how about your area of growth? I mean, you talked about the personal development of some of your team and, and the kind of one-on-one meetings with them. What are you working on today for yourself? I'm still working on communication has been in my, in my project plan since I started. And I just think about how can I be more effective as a communicator? I asked myself, and this goes back to one of my coaches in triathlon, they said to me, what does it look like tomorrow if you were 10 times better than you were today? So I'm always thinking of how I can be more effective of a communicator. Um, and that could be with public speaking, that could be with motivating teams, that could be with being a better listener is all something, uh, is something very important to me when I say listening beyond the words. So that person that I'm talking to feels like they are the only one on this planet. And really, again, on communication, thinking about how I can flex my style to different personality types. Mm. Um, I got trained to be a Sendelani facilitator many years ago at Hertz. 
And really, probably the biggest takeaway was, you know, thinking that we're always operating in our personality type. And when you can learn to flex to different people's styles, it is so powerful because you're connecting with them on a deeper level. Got it. All right. Talk about Steve Case for a second. You got to work with Steve. Was he was the founder or co-founder of AOL? Um, what was that like? Well, I was working for Hertz for 15 years, had a great, had a great run with them, was never, ever going to think about leaving. It was, you know, growing up, I spent no more than two years into a getting from one position to the next. And then a recruiter called me up and said, just go down. And I'm like, oh, I want to meet Steve Casey. He's pretty cool. So I just thought it was an opportunity, no intention of taking the job. I spent a half hour with Steve Case. We ended up talking for an hour and a half. And he just, um, his humbleness, his ability to connect with people is something I inspire to. I actually signed the contract and quit my job on the way back to go work for Steve Case. And just the innovation and the way he thought about things, I learned so much in that year and a half I was with Flexcar, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I'll bet you would. What was he like as a leader? Uh, very humble. Um, and I think it goes back to some of the principles I talked about. He built relationships rooted in trust. And he really empowered the team to make decisions. He had a general vision. And he talked about that. But we brought it to life. And he enabled and allowed us to challenge that. Hmm. I see him every year at the main TED conference. Um, I've been going for the last nine or 10 years. And I've never actually either sat with him at a dinner or been able to just walk up and say hi. I think I'll make a point this April to go and just say hi to him because I he always seems to be so approachable. Um, and he's never really, it's not like he's surrounded by a crowd anymore. It's not like, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, Zuckerberg showing up and people like would swarm Steve. He's just been around the industry for so long that he's kind of like any of the VCs that might be there. So I'll go and say hi for sure. Yeah. And I, and I'd also stay with Steve is, you know, when he started Flexcar, he knew there were opportunities where he wasn't an expert in, and the people he brought on, he brought on Joe Vittoria, who is the retired CEO of uh, Avis. Uh, he brought on the guys from Nantucket Nectar. So he had a cross-functional team that knew how to market, Knew, uh, knew the car rental process. And that was that was a great learning experience because I realized find people that don't have the expertise you do and leverage that and bring them on board to make your team stronger. Mm, that makes sense. So over to Equinox, that's kind of more the, the large format. I call the big box, but I don't know what the proper term would be for it. But you go into the Equinox. How, did, uh, how was it working with that organization? Uh, that was probably the uh, one of the best experiences of my life. Going from being in the transportation industry to try and infiltrate this organization where I was passionate about took a long time. And I, I, I didn't apply for anything. I actually wrote a letter to the president of Equinox, uh, Scott Rosen, and said, I have, you know, I have this set of skills. I see you may be looking for something here. Um, I'd love to meet and talk and um, Scott and I met for six months before he finally offered me a job, but it, uh, it was an amazing experience. How about on the franchising space? You've been in franchising multi-unit operations now for so many brands. And I think so few companies are those multiple brand or multiple location type businesses. What do you think we need to be better at when we're running those companies or what, what lessons can the single unit operators, um, learn from the franchisors or multi-units? 
Well, I, I think the first thing I've learned to work in for different franchise organizations is you can never listen to your franchisees enough. It's we think we know what's best. And that's why you mentioned it earlier, having a selection of corporate owned studios so we can see the pain points and understand that. I think sometimes in some of the organization, we forget that our customer is the franchisee. Mm-hmm. We've got to listen to what their challenges are and try and d- devise solutions to help them be even more effective than they are today. Because ultimately, if they're not successful, we're not successful. Yeah, it's interesting. When I left 1-800-GOT-JUNK like 13 years ago, they brought in the former president of Starbucks US to replace me and she was gone 12 months later and she did not listen to the franchisees. She didn't even like the franchisees and really was thinking of it as a more corporate decision that we, you would roll out. And I'm like, nah, they built this thing. Like they know it better than anybody. They know the employees, they know the customers, they know the pain points, they know pricing, they know what's working, what's not working. Like all we have to do is ask them and do what they want in the most part, kind of filter it through the highest leverage because some of them have random ideas that won't get enough leverage off, but we don't have to really think of anything. They've already got all the thoughts. Yeah, and and that's what I did. And And they built the foundation that this company is, is now reason why they're successful. I went out and identified who were the senior members of the team, what are their pain points. And it also gave me additional credibility because I, I had some franchise that owners that own 20, 30 studios talking to them and understand what should I focus on first and then going back and then being able to deliver that gives you credibility. But if you are operating in a box and you're not visiting your franchises or listening to them, it I've seen what can happen in those cases. Yeah, it's over. All right. You think back to when you were 22 years old, you're just starting out in your business career. What word of advice would you give yourself back then that now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known at 22? Uh, I, I, I have the words I would say. I'm, gonna, I'm going to edit them a little bit. I would say, don't be a, jack, a jackass and leave your ego at the door. You know, I re- I remember when um, early in my career, I was all I've always been an athlete. I've always been performance driven. I'm like, we're number one. We're the best. That's all that matters. I'm the best. I'm the best. And what I really realized, even if if my region was doing the greatest, a true leader is going up and talking to his colleague that is not doing as good as you, and making sure you're helping them. Being help, uh, being again humble, vulnerable. And allowing yourself to, you know, continue to grow. And for a few years back then, when I was twenty something, I was not growing, and I stopped. I stopped learning, and as a result, I stopped growing. And, and the other thing, the other thing I'd say is never allow yourself to be a victim. There's so many opportunities where something goes wrong, and you can blame technology, you can blame finance, whatever it is. But I find a way every time when something doesn't go right to say, what could I have done differently? And as soon as I own it, I'm actually able to get on with it and be more accountable. So I don't spend a lot of time pointing things. I spend a lot of time saying, what did I do? I didn't ask the right questions. I should ask better questions. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things I look for in leaders is people who are introspective and they'll blame themselves before the outward forces. Griff Long, the COO for Orange Theory Fitness, thank you so much for being with us on the Second in Command podcast. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Yeah, it was amazing. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.